And now we will proclaim the Lord's death by taking the Lord's Supper together here in just a few moments. Our sermon for this day as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and take the bread and the cup and by doing so proclaim the death of Jesus for sinners. He is our only hope throughout this life. He'll be our hope at death. He'll be our hope on the other side of death. Our only boast, our only ground of confidence is not in us, not in our flimsiness and our utterly uh, short and pitiful efforts. But we stand upon the solid rock of the finished work of Christ, the dear Son of God who didn't try, but he actually accomplished what he came to do. He paid in full the debt of all who would ever trust him so that the record against us, the, the charges of the crimes that we have committed against our God have been taken away. And we read in Romans that there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. No condemnation. So we're going to proclaim his death as we take the bread and the cup in a minute. Preparing for our joyfully doing that, our meditation this morning, our theme will be this theme, thorns and the gospel. Thorns and the gospel. And I want to give you four snapshots from the scriptures where we see thorns pop up and where we see God dealing with thorns in a specific way. And of course, we'll culminate right at the end with the most significant of all those snapshots. Let's pray first. We bow, Father, before you, amazed, overwhelmed with such kindness and goodness and grace to us, wretched sinners, who have now been changed into adopted sons and daughters, having been forgiven all our sins, having been promised great things, exceeding great and precious promises having been made heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, looking for him to come, looking for that blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And until you come, we would cry out, O oh Lord, help us. Strengthen us. Embolden us. Give us what we cannot produce ourselves, a supernatural peace and joy and faith and, and hope and love for even those that would curse us and despitefully use us and persecute us. We remember that this world is full of snares and traps and thorns and enemies, and so, Lord, give us a watchful heart. And while we have been brought from death to life and from darkness to light, we realize that there are many still ensnared and still enslaved and chained in bondage. And we pray, oh, great serpent crusher, Lord Jesus, would you liberate the captives? 
Would you break the chains? Would you show forth your power to those who are tormented and attacked and overwhelmed in such a way, Lord, that we will be able to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was the power of God, the living and true God, that prevailed upon the most hopeless of cases, which is a sinner without you and left to him or herself. Thank you now for your word that will feed our soul. And so may we speak it carefully and clearly, boldly and unashamedly and unapologetically for the glory of Christ. We pray for our suffering and persecuted brothers and sisters around the world today. There are pastors in jail today because they are preaching your word in the face of hostile government entities and laws and persecutors. They would not compromise. They would not be quiet and they are incarcerated. Give them peace today. Save their persecutors. Cause your church to grow and cause the gospel to spread and cause our hearts to be at peace and to stand with great conviction if it becomes our turn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ecclesiastes, you don't have to turn there, but listen to 7-6 of Ecclesiastes. It says that as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Thorns were basically good for one thing, and that was to burn. You would take the thorns and you would put them under the pot and you would light them and they would make loud crackling noises for a little bit and they would cause the fire to rage for a little bit and then they would be gone. And he compares here the fool's laughter to the thorns under a pot that are crackling and making a loud noise for just a moment. In Hebrews 6, 8 through 10, we read there that... Excuse me. Excuse me. Hebrews 6, 8 through 10, I said, I think, but that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So he writes to professing believers who are on the verge of turning back from Christ, back to Judaism. And he says, don't do that. If you do that, you will be fruitless. You will bear only briars and thorns, and those will be rejected and burned. And so two passages, Ecclesiastes 7, 6, and Hebrews 6, 8, and 9, says that thorns are good for one thing, and that is you burn them. Thorns are not beautiful. Have any of you men ever gone to the florist and bought your wife a bouquet of thorns? Well, you might buy some roses that includes the thorns, but you don't buy the thorns. You don't seek out the thorns. They're not beautiful. They're not impressive. They're not helpful. In fact, they're very hurtful. Thorns cause pain. Thorns mar the beauty of the rose. They mar the beauty of God's creation. Thorns are a fitting emblem of sin. They mar, they cause pain, 
They have no useful purpose. They're not helpful. They are indeed fitting emblems of sin. In Romans 3, where the Apostle Paul shows that all people are sinners, he describes us like this. He says, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Just the most unclean, hurtful things come out of their mouths. Their feet are in a hurry to do something. What is it? Their feet are swift to shed blood. They want to hurt somebody. They run to do it. They're so eager to hurt. And it says destruction and misery are in their ways. That's Romans 3, 14 through 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Everywhere they go, they destroy. And everywhere they go, they leave a trail of misery behind them. What's wrong with our world today? Well, it's real simple. What's wrong with our world is the people in it. Uh, The people in this world are rebels against God and hostile to God and to one another. And everywhere we go and everything we say and all that we do is hurtful and pierces and mars and destroys and leaves misery. Until God changes us, until God puts a restrainer in us and a constrainer that motivates us to do differently and to think differently... Now, we don't want to hurt, though we may still sometimes wind up hurting. We don't seek to hurt people. We don't want to speak lies or gossip or hurtful things, and yet sometimes we do find ourselves going there, and we are grieved by that, and the Holy Spirit shows us this is not how it's to be, my my son or my daughter, and we repent. We give the glory to God if there's any righteousness of of all that comes from us, don't we? It's not native to us. It is owing to God's grace. Amen? The first time we see thorns in the Bible, snapshot number one, the Garden of Eden. Turn to Rome, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Adam, the first. Adam, our father, our representative is placed in a beautiful place, perfect place. He's given a helper, his dear wife Eve. They're told to tend the garden and have dominion over all things. And we see in chapter 3 of Genesis, in a singular act of defiance and disobedience, Adam murders the human race. You say, well, it's just not fair that all of us are sinners because of Adam. I've heard people say that. But you know what we must admit, beloved? We ratify, we put our approval on Adam's actions every day of our lives by defying God, by not thanking God, by listening to bad counsel, by dreaming up bad plans just as Satan suggests to Adam and Eve. We ratify Adam's decisions by our own sin every day. We are truly Adam's sons and daughters, aren't we? And we see in Genesis 3.17, part of the curse of Adam's sin is this. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying... Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. 
In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. And so... This is the first snapshot of thorns. Thorns spring up from a cursed ground. Cursed because of Adam, the gardener. Adam, the one that was given dominion over all things. He yields his dominion to Satan. He follows Satan's counsel. And even the ground itself, even creation itself is cursed and springs up thorns and thistles. And so every time we prick our finger... Every time we look out at a field and it's overgrown with weeds and thorns. Every time we see a twisted bramble bush, a twisted thorn bush, it ought to remind us of the ugly and frustrating and piercing and confusing work that sin has done in this world. Sin causes confusion. Sin causes pain. Sin causes ultimate frustration and it causes ugliness of the true kind, true ugliness. And so here in this beautiful scene where God made all things good, there comes a blotch on God's good creation, God's beautiful masterpiece. Can you imagine visiting a museum where there hangs in the gallery masterpiece paintings that are beyond the ability to even put a price on. These are one-of-a-kind masterpiece paintings. And you go in there with a Sharpie marker, and you begin to just put marks all over them and defile them. Into this beautiful scene, this masterpiece, you give your little toddler a marker. (laughs) And there she or he goes with... A permanent marker defiling. I have in my Bible, and I've done this for years because I knew I would not be able to remember everything that I read, uh, hymns, uh, poems, statements, quotes, and I would write them in the front and back of my Bible, and I would number them, and at times when I'm preparing a sermon, I'll remember a particular poem, and I'll write it down in my notes, number 26 poem, and I'll, I can go back and read it now. I don't have to remember it all. I, that's a good thing because... Can't remember like we, we used to, can we? I made the mistake one day of leaving my Bible open on the table, on my dining room table, with my pen beside. I use a little fine point pen so I can write real small and get a lot of stuff in here. And I have on this page what the boys used to call scribble scrabble. Uh, Luke, our son, came along and picked up my pen while I was out of the room. And he, on this page, I don't know whether you can see it here or not, right there. He did that about three or four times, and I wrote a little note beside it, Luke, exclamation point, so I can remember what happened. And he was just a little guy that didn't know what he was doing, but he made a mess (laughs) on my quotes that I had written down. And that reminded me of another story, same little guy, by the way. 
Back in those wonderful days when the boys had to do their science projects in middle school that basically the parents did for them. And so Jeremiah had finished his science project and he had his display board there on the table and everything was done. And Luke found a marker and he came in there and he wrote all over this finished science display. And Jeremiah was so mad, he cried with anger. He was so upset. And we said, Luke, what were you doing? And what were you trying to draw? And he said, a cowboy. He was just drawing a cowboy on the science project. He didn't know what he had done wrong. And he said, a cowboy. We still joke about that to this day. He made a blotch on the beautiful order. Someone had gone to a lot of trouble and time, namely his mama, and he was going to take it to school and get it graded. And, and now it's marred and he had to start all over. The thorns popped up from the good ground that God had made. The beautiful ground where there were trees and flowers and plants galore. A scene of beauty has now been marred by a scene of hideous ugliness. Proverbs says... Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. Here's a perverse man, a perverted woman. And as they go, they go a thorny way of snares. It's a hard life. Another proverb says, the way of the transgressor is hard. Have we not found that to be true? It doesn't ever go well when we defy God. It doesn't go easy. Sometimes it doesn't go easy if we obey God. Sometimes even in the right straight paths, it's hard. But you can be sure of this, every time we go against God and we kick against Him, it will not go well with us. We will reap some bad consequences from that. So the thorns are the fruit of sin. They're unsightly and hurtful and ugly. And they have all this time now marred the beauty of that pre-fall world. But God, but God. Let's move to snapshot number two. Thorns in the garden springing up because of sin. Now, the next snapshot we see, and I want to point you to, is in Exodus chapter 3. We call it the burning bush where Moses sees a sight that catches his attention. A bush is on fire, and yet it is not consumed. And Moses says, I will draw near and see this unusual sight and as he gets near he hears a voice and Exodus 3 says that God appears in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush and he says Moses do not come any closer take your shoes off this is holy ground I am the God of your father. I've seen the affliction of my people. I'm going to deliver them from the Egyptians. This is a summary of verses 1 through 8. A fire in the midst of a bush. And the word there for bush is a thorny bush. Could have been any number of bushes growing in the desert. The root word of this word bush means to prick. 
It was a bush that pricked. It was a thorny bush. When Jesus in Luke 20 and Stephen in Acts 7 both refer to this incident, they asked Jesus, whose wife shall this lady be in the resurrection? Seven men had her. And he says, have you not read that when God appeared to Moses at the bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. The word that Jesus used there in the New Testament for bush is the same word that Stephen uses in his sermon in Acts 7 where he talks about God appears to Moses at the bush. It means a bramble bush, a thorn bush, a a briar shrub of some kind, a sticker, one that hurts. And yet, God appears in some form of a fire. It's a visible expression of the infinite God here in this place. In a bush that burns, but it's not consumed. Later, he'll come to that same holy mountain where Moses saw the bush, and he'll give his law there at Mount Sinai, a law that will condemn us all. It will condemn all of us. It shows the holy character of God. It shows the holy requirements of a holy God. And that law is meant to show us what we are in our nature, what we are as a sinner, that we would smite upon our breast and run to Jesus, the substitute for sinners. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24. That was such a solemn event when God gave his law that it says in Exodus 19 that they were to put a fence around the mountain lest any person or animal come to approach the mountain. And if any person or animal were to even touch that mountain, they were to be killed. What a solemn event. God is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells us. Remember that verse in Hebrews 12, 29? God is a consuming fire. When Jesus comes again, we'll read these words in 2 Thessalonians 1. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so God is a consuming fire. God required death for those that would touch the mountain. God gave a law that condemned us all. And yet, and yet, The one who appeared in the Garden of Eden and walked with them and pronounced the curse of thorns. Now this same God appears in the midst of a thorn bush, promising deliverance from bondage. And so the lawgiver who judges Adam and Eve in the garden and pronounces a curse is not just a lawgiver and a judge. He's also a savior. And he is a savior of lawbreakers. And he's in a bush that burns with his presence, but the bush is not burned up. And I think we see there, beloved, a foreshadowing that God will dwell with his people, but they won't be consumed. God will be close to his people. His fiery presence will be with his people, but he won't destroy them. He won't burn them up and consume them. He will be there with them. And here he is. And we see a little hint of that at Pentecost too, don't we? They're gathered together on the day of Pentecost. It says, tongues of fire 
appeared above their heads. And God was now going to take his church and set their mouth aflame with the gospel and send them into the world. And they would preach in every language. The reverse of Babel would be would happen. Babel, all the languages were confounded and they couldn't understand each other. And now God sends his Holy Spirit. He sets men's mouths on fire and he sends them out to preach the gospel in every language of the world. And many were saved there on that day of Pentecost because God's fiery presence was with his people and he didn't consume them. So God, snapshot number two, is a liberator of slaves, a deliverer of his people. He will go into Egypt. He will destroy Pharaoh, the Egyptian army, the Egyptian riches, the Egyptian land, and he will bring his people out. God is a savior of his people. Can you say amen? Snapshot number three. Same book, the book of Exodus. You get to chapter 25 of Exodus, and for the rest of that book, 25 through 40, God gives the instructions on how to build him a tent, a tabernacle. He calls it the tent of meeting. I will meet with you in this tent. It was a, it was a portable structure. They would raise it up, and then they would take it down and move. And when God said, let's stop right here, they would pitch the tent up again, and they would set it up. They carried all the articles of that tabernacle through the wilderness wanderings. God said, I want you to take the shittah tree or the acacia tree. What do we know about the acacia tree? It was a tree that was small that was covered with thorns. Take this thorny shrub that you find all over this desert and make a place where I will meet with you there. Take this tree and make the boards for the outer wall. That was made out of the shittim wood or acacia wood. Take this wood and make the Ark of the Covenant, this rectangular box that'll be in the holy place. Make the altar of Incense with it, make the table of showbread with it, all made out of acacia wood. This common tree covered with thorns. But I want you to do something to it, God said. I want you to cover it with gold. Can you imagine a thorn bush covered with gold? That doesn't quite fit, does it? Why wouldn't they take something more beautiful and beautify that? It'd be easier, wouldn't it? You're going to beautify an ugly thing? That's what God does. That's what God in his grace always does. He brings beauty from ashes. He gives joy in the place of mourning. He is a restoring God. He is a saving God. He is a delivering God. And he's a God who dwells with his people. And this tabernacle, this tent that the Levites will carry on poles, the articles were not to be handled as if they were common pieces of furniture. They, they had rings in the corners, and they would take these poles and run them through the rings and carry them on their shoulders and stop and set them up. And certain ones would do certain jobs. And this tabernacle was right in the middle of the camp, and there would be 
three tribes on the north and three tribes on the south and three tribes on the east and three tribes on the west, they would all encamp around this central meeting place where God's presence was. All of life was to center around the living God who was meeting with them there in a thorny tabernacle beautified with gold. To the natural eye, it had a beauty, but the real beauty of the tabernacle was not the gold, was it? What was the real beauty of the tabernacle? It was the presence of the Lord. He was there with his people. He is teaching us. He taught them and he's teaching us that he will, though holy and we, though unholy, he will still dwell with us, but he will make provisions. How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Well, God instituted the sacrificial system. God says, take lambs and bulls and doves and take this meal offering and and so forth and offer these sacrifices. You will come to me through the blood. You will come to me through the sacrifice. You will come to me through the mediating priest. There will be priests assigned to man the brazen altar and to fill up the laver where you can wash the blood's got to be shed, and you got to wash, you got to be clean, and the, the, the animal will be burned up in the, in the fiery offering at the burnt altar, and then you will come and wash, and the priest will represent you, and he will come in once a year to the Holy of Holies, and he will sprinkle blood on that, the top of that box, that Ark of the Covenant, the top of it was called the mercy seat. It was just the lid of the box, but it was a place that had... Angels on each side with their wings pointed toward the middle. And once a year, the priest would come in and would sprinkle blood on that thorny box covered with gold and now covered with blood. And he would mediate for the people. So God is holy, and yet he'll dwell with his people. And how is that possible? Through bloody sacrifices and through mediating priests, through fires that burn hot and waters that wash clean. And God is teaching in all that. I will still dwell with you, my people. And so the tabernacle becomes the dwelling place of God's glorious fiery presence, a fire by night and a cloud by day as they journey through the wilderness. And you see right at the end of the book of Exodus, the glory of the Lord fills that tabernacle And the priests are not even able to stand in there. And God is with his people in a thorny tent. Snapshot number four, and you know this one. Turn to Matthew 27. We read words that may make us cry. Tears would be very appropriate over this passage. It's entitled in my study Bible, A Roman Soldier's Mock Jesus, Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, 
And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And so the thorns and thistles of Eden's curse, the thorns that sprang up to symbolize the curse and the pain and the shame and the ugliness of sin, now rests upon the top of the head of the most beautiful person who's ever lived, upon the head of our Lord Jesus Christ, the dear, holy Son of God. Adam comes to a a live tree there in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with fruit. Adam comes naked to this live tree, and he takes and eats, and he spiritually murders the whole race by that singular act of defiance. And now Jesus... The second Adam, the better Adam, comes to a dead tree, the cross, and he allows himself to be stripped naked, and in the ultimate act of obedience, in the ultimate act of obedience, after a whole lifetime of full and total obedience to the Father, he offers himself as a sin offering. And he makes alive all who would ever, by God's grace, repent and trust him as Savior. So that now, instead of thorns, thorns, thorns everywhere, now there is for the believer in Jesus. We heard it in our prayer of confession. There are robes of beauty to wear. And there are feasts for us to sit down to and eat. And there is eternal life. That will never end. That death itself cannot stop. And there is joy, joy, joy everywhere among the saints of God. Even among the thorns. Revelation tells us about a time when there will be no more curse. Revelation 22.3. In the new heaven and new earth where Jesus reigns. As King of kings and Lord of lords, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death, no more curse. Warren Wiersbe calls it the blessed place of no mores. No more this, no more that, no more of the other. Because Jesus wore our crown, beloved, Jesus bore our shame. Jesus received the ugly treatment, the ugliness that sin has brought into this world. He bears it in full. His, not only his finger was pierced, his hands and feet and his head was pierced with the emblem of the curse. But we praise God this morning, don't we? 
The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. And so there's Jesus. Look at him. He's patient. He could strike him dead with a word. He could command a a legion of angels to come and wipe him all out. And he stands silent like a lamb before its shearers. And he bears the insults. Have you ever been mocked? It's ugly. We were talking about that, how cruel children can be to each other before maybe they learn a little bit of, of how inappropriate that is to say or do that toward any other human being. They, they bully or they are hurt, hurtful and harsh to someone. And sometimes how that scar will cut the psyche of that individual and will be with them their whole life. A mocking word, a mocking statement was made on the playground in second grade or whatever. And here's this 50-year-old man today that says, it makes me so ashamed to feel what I felt then. I still feel it. Isn't that something? To be mocked, to be hurt, to be insulted, to be so devalued. And let me tell you who's been most mocked, most insulted, and most devalued of all people that have ever lived. It was our Lord Jesus on this day when he wore our crown. Stripped, mocked, beaten, insulted. And he patiently bears it all. And because of it, we are secured. We are saved. We are delivered. We are kept by the same one. He is now crowned with glory and it is mighty hand he holds his church and none can snatch us out of his hand thorns and the gospel they spring up out of the ground to illustrate the failure of man and yet God will not be frustrated by man's failures there he is in a bush and not consuming it and making promises of deliverance and there he is in a tent going with his people even in the wilderness Providing water and providing quail with his people. But the beautiful and ultimate snapshot is when we come to the Matthew's gospel and Mark's. It's also in Mark's. And we see the Holy Son of God going to that old dead tree and bringing forth eternal life for all who would believe. Praise his name. Praise his good and holy name. Because Jesus died, we have been released from Satan's grip. And now we're in the good grip of his grace. We are now no longer under the awful wrath of God. We're now standing in this grace wherein we stand, Romans 5, 2. Now, in light of that, beloved, come with joy to the table this morning. Come with joy to the table.